0: Master Series, 60 Minutes, Interactive, Immersive Experience. Mr. Harm Schmidt is a molecular biologist specialising in wounds. He's active in teaching and wound research as a lecturer at Erasmus University, Rotterdam, Netherlands. Dr. Ruth Bryant, Director and Research Scientist Abbott Northwestern Hospital, Minneapolis, Minnesota, past president of the A.A.W.C. Professor Barbara Bates Jensen is professor, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA School of Nursing. She's one of the leading global wound care experts. Professor Amit Geffen, Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Tel Aviv University. Professor Geffen is a leading global expert on pressure injury prevention. Dr. Jonathan Johnson, Surgical Director of the Comprehensive Wound Care Services in Washington, DC. Sharon Eve Sonnenblom, Principal Research Scientist, Biomedical Engineer at Georgia Institute of Technology. Jacqueline Brace, Adult Care Nurse Practitioner, Cleveland, Ohio. Pressure injuries are a really costly, debilitating condition that can cost the patient not only personally, but nursing and medical time, um, as well as hospital stays. So it's a really important topic and we're really grateful to you for joining us. Uh, for this 60 minute masterclass interactive. My name is Nagin Shamsin, I'm the editor of Wound Masterclass and it's my pleasure to spend the next 60 minutes with you uh, on this really important topic. Uh, we're joined by probably the world's best wound care leaders uh, who've been specializing in this topic for decades now um, and they'll be spending the next 60 minutes with us. And please use the live chat on your screen Uh, To ask any questions throughout this 60 minutes and uh, we'll get to as many of your questions as we can today. So before we start, I'm just going to show you the screen that you have in front of you and just a couple of housekeeping uh, notes to make. So in terms of your certificates of attendance, these will be posted to you uh, within four weeks of the event finishing. Um, And in terms of the menu and the interface, let me just show you um, how to navigate that. So thank you everyone for joining us, here is our interface that we're using, so this is our lobby and we're coming into the exhibitors hall where the session tonight will be held. We also have the auditorium which is where the lectures will begin and um, you just need to click on this screen in order to um, watch the webinar. The exhibit hall has our exhibitors um, and you can just click and pick up some information from them um, before you leave. The lounge has an area where we can interact with you and you can read our current issue and our June issue as well as meet the speakers for tonight's session. So thank you very much for joining us and let's begin with the first session. So thank you very much for spending the next 60 minutes with us and let's start by going to Harm Schmidt who is a leading wound expert from the Netherlands. He's going to tell us a little bit about pressure, injury, and how it starts. And over to you,
1: Harm. One of the things which set me on this next path uh, was actually a research uh, endeavor we set up a few years ago where we were trying to to do, uh, essentially, it was a biomarker fishing expedition using all the latest technology and tools to figure out if we could make sense of what was happening in wounds and perhaps have some some objective uh, measures for that. So, um, hence, I, I decided I needed that. So I wrote down this little paper where he says, what's wound medicine then? And wound uh, medicine is, is the science of a system uh, which is different from looking at cells and whatever. It's about the system uh, which safeguards the functional structural integrity of the body by maintaining and restoring homeostasis. Homeostasis means that's the happy camper state of cells where you should have your cells all in and whatever uh, uh, is... is uh, uh, is causing problems for that uh, will have to be handled by the system. Um, so the system is much l- larger than just a wound, it's about imminent danger, it's also about detecting danger. And uh, the system then will have to assess that incoming or existing danger and figure out okay, what's the likelihood. Of it having an impact of X, Y, and Z, so the system has constantly to, to, to monitor the system and figure out what's going on: temperature, moisture, uh, all the, the regular ones, but also imminent effects for what's coming on to me. And then they have to control it and figure out: is what is it going to do for me? Do I have to act, or I don't have to act? Uh, and then it move into effectiveness. And the other one is if, if you start talking about homeostasis, there's a wide gap between uh, loss of homeostasis and destruction of cells and tissue so you have to think about what's going on Um, and this comes from if you start calculating on wounds um, i run into all kinds of mathematical problems and one of them was that uh, the wound is not uh, is is a form of damage but it's not the damage itself damage itself is much more wide-ranged and then you see that before the wound occurs you have to go through all kinds of stages Which go from normal, adapted, stressed, injured, damaged to eventually destruction. And I, 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 uh, I discussed this this line with Caroline Five, and she suggested I should call it the harm scale. So that's uh, how it came alive. And once you have this harm scale, you start thinking that it's not only working in time, but it's also working in space. So and then you start discovering all kinds of of neat things like that. The active zone in any given wound, the metabolic active zone in the wound, is perhaps more outside the wound than inside. Uh, And then you get all kinds of nice, neat uh, uh, research, which tells you that uh, the most important things happen outside of the wound, because inside the wound, there's not Uh even enough energy available to do a division, cellular division. So that's the fun part. And the clinical result of this is that you might also have to think twice about where you place your interventions, because it could be very well. If you have a a diversificating agent, you might not want to pour it in the wound, but put it somewhere else. So now if you look at these harming events in this system, what is it then? What's a harming event? And a harming event is an event which supersedes the bodily ability to handle it. So it's just stronger, the force, and in and, 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 and the cubit its force, um, but it's an event which is coming onto you. And the reason it will cause harm is, is that if your, your system is not able, if your body is not able to avoid it, yeah. Or, and the other one is it has weakened to a point where normal non-harming events become harming and but this
0: relates uh, this relates really well to the medical device related pressure ulcers um, that scenario as well because I guess the patient may be sedated maybe unconscious maybe intubated so they're not able to obviously have the normal responses uh, in the body that you would have if you were awake and somebody was putting a, a mask that was too tight or Yes, correct. So that's, that's the clinical yeah, relationship. Correct. But,
1: yeah, but, but that's the first one. The second one is that it, it takes, because I, there's one doctor I always ask tough questions, and he says one thing. He says, I can't tell you which patient will develop a pressure ulcer, but I can't tell you why. Um, and that same applies to people uh, wearing masks, I presume. There will be people who you can put on wooden masks who won't develop an ulcer and people who you can put up a well-designed mask and will still develop also. So that's the, the second part. So it's not only what you put on it, but also what's under it. Um, and if you're not able to avoid it, it can be due to a stochastic or just chance events. That's, that's line 12 I always use for that. You just Sometimes you just get hit by something. But otherwise, it, it could be that your system is not able to detect the imminent danger or the, the danger it, able, it doesn't recognize it because that's, that's if there's something happening to you which is supposed to be normal, but suddenly isn't. Well, you just have to figure out what's going on. And then the last one is you're not uh, going to be able to, to respond to this, this harm, uh, for instance, because you're lying still in the bed. And usually in real life, you'll have, it will be a combination of these, these three factors. So if you move that over to uh, pressure ulcers or decubitus. I prefer to use the word decubitus because I, I think pressure ulcer and pressure injury Um, that's all about pressure, and I think the real action is forces. There's forces acting in tissue, and that's much more than only pressure, Because and and, and I think Amit will make sure, talk about that, that if you have a bony prominence, that's not exactly pressure, that's forces going in all kinds of directions. So if you're not able to detect, well, the obvious one we all know, that's a paraplegic, where your pain signals just do not transfer to the brain, and therefore the body, the patient, will not reposition even if it's necessary. But there are also a whole group of patients, and I always ask nurses about that. So which patients actually gave signals of discomfort or pain prior to developing a lesion? And then you get very mixed results back, which means that there's also something there, which means that some causes could be actually in, in a neuropathic type of problem, which would fish out a group of patients. So And this is all prior to having a lesion, so you look at that. And not being able to recognize what's going on, that means that your tissue quality has deteriorated over time, which happens in elderly people. Um, what we see, there's something called the, the, the shadow of natural selections, which means that uh, at a certain age, uh, the natural selections, forces of natural selection don't work as good as they did. And there you get all these funny diseases. And if you look at whatever we see in wound care, they're all in this, this, this select, selection shadow. So here we have, if your tissue has deteriorated to a point where normal problems actually start causing problems. And the one would be, of course, the Kennedy terminal uh, ulcer types, end-of-life events uh, where your tissue is just weaken so much that any normal thing won't work. Um, and there's a bit of a discussion, uh, like how do we know it's a Kennedy terminal ulcer and not uh, the other one, uh, uh, neglect, for instance, yeah, to make it a bit sharper. Uh, and I, I'm quite strongly Uh, convinced that in the end lab work will give the answer Uh, and the other one is that events which in themselves are not harmful and not detected as such but that the compound repetitive effect of that event will cause levels of damage accumulation which means if you if you move your patient fast enough from side to side uh, it will cause problems in the end because damage takes it, it takes a minute to cause damage but it takes more time to resolve the effect of it now, not being able to respond, that's the obvious one. If you're laying still in bed and you're having a problem, but you can't move, then you're not able to respond. Um, but then here, not able to respond, I always bring in my other favorite, which is organizational levels. You can, you can look at wounds at molecular basis, but also on the patient basis, but also on the institutional organizational levels. So I see, and especially in the Netherlands, we have this nowadays, is that uh, hospitals appear to accept the fact that there is... Uh, pressure ulcers in patients, which is a not very positive development. So at the institutional the level, there's knowledge. People are not really interested. Who is the dedicated pressure ulcer doctor? Tell me because I would like to know one because I don't know them. Yeah, you're, you're delivered to whatever, whoever picks up that role. Time, money, and, and hands available. They reduce the ability to take proper care of the patient. So that's, at the, that's outside of the patient, you already run into troubles in being able to respond. At the level of the patient, there is a disability of sarcopenia, which reduces the possibility to reposition. And here, you might even consider, which is my crude approach to the idea, is that put your patient on a rock, because that will increase the signals from having hypoxia or other kinds of things, and then they will also move easier on that surface. So you want, and by moving them, you also prevent uh, muscle loss, uh, because you want to have them mobilized all the time. And then at the at the tissue level, which is a bit lower, where we see, for instance, that reperfusion tissue reperfusion after you pinch off a vessel, it's a very wise decision to open up the blood vessel after afterwards, so that you can make sure that the the, the tissue which has been deoxygenized gets gets a lot of oxygen again and can get rid of what its metabolites and stuff like that. So that's that's a perfectly normal way of responding. But if you pinch off vessels every now and then, uh, or, or more, more often, it suddenly turns into a damaging effect where you have more fluid pouring out into, into the tissue than you would like to have. So, this is a, so you might consider this as a system which derails and it has a normal function, but suddenly turns against you. And, and there are more examples of that in wound care, where we have uh, antagonistic biotropic uh, events where normal things suddenly turn against you. And at the molecular level there's also one uh, there's a tensegrity system uh, which means that uh, all your cells are connected from the nucleus up to your entire body uh, which is because the, the system which always wanted me is how can we have all these kind of different tissue types and how can they act in a concerted manner in regarding to advance when it comes to force that's my my question always so that's at the molecular level uh, it, it, once you break that system, it's like ripping a cloth and you have tears and they, they run through it. So that's one of the pieces of it of, of problems you can have in wounds. So finally, the, the, the picture above is my, my general uh, idea of what's happening in, in tissue damage. So there is a damaging event. It can cause the damage or it can be imminent, and then the body will have to respond to it. So the response comes first, the damage comes to secondly, And once if there is damage, you get all kinds of secondary damage, which means that you can have bacteria in the wound. But also, if you lose, for instance, if you lose the the, the, the dermis on a on a tissue, the underlying tissue becomes much more susceptible to forces.
0: Thank you, Harm. That was a really informative session uh, you've given us. Any questions from the Q and A's? Please type in the text chat that's on your screen, and we'll answer any queries that you have. Next speaker, we're going to go over to the virtual auditorium now to hear from Dr. Ruth Bryant, who's going to tell us the who, what, where, solving the mystery of pressure injury.
2: The problem that we're going to look at today is actually focusing on detection difficulties in all settings. And with the idea that if you can't detect it, then you can't prevent it. So that, that's what we wanna look at, is how can we um, look at detection differently than what we have normally, consistently, routinely done in our, in our practices. And I'm gonna set the stage this morning by essentially setting the stage and going through some of the um, pathophysiology of pressure ulcer formation to remind us um, what the process is and to maybe update some of our thinking and understanding, and use that as methods to help us better identify additional ways of detection. And these are our objectives. We'll focus on what are the pathways to pressure injury. Then we'll talk about how those pathways occur and the time frame that they in which they occur. And then we'll look at signs and symptoms that uh, correlate with those. With that pressure injury pathways. The definition of a pressure ulcer has been put forth by in the clinical practice guidelines as a localized damage to the skin and or underlying tissue as a result of pressure or pressure in combination with shear. Our long-held belief has been that pressure ulcers are the result of of occluding capillaries, that we would sit and that the capillaries would be occluded by the pressure against the bony prominence or against the surface that you're sitting on. And then you'd have this, you know, we paid a lot of attention to capillary closing pressure, a lot of attention to interface pressures. I remember measuring all those and trying to reduce that that capillary, that interface pressure so that didn't exceed the capillary closing pressure. And we also um, became familiar with this curve, the time, and duration curve, so that with, the, with more time, low pressures over long term would cause damage. High pressures over a short term would cause damage. And this was widely accepted as how as the inner how um, ischemia and capillary occlusion would occur. But today we understand that while there is an ischemia component to it, the true force of injury is or damage is really from um, mechanical loading and it's a deformation of tissues. And that when that tissues are exposed to both a normal force and a shear force, that mechanical loading is what will cause the tissues to distort, the tissues being the cells, um, um, the, the vascular supply, all of that being distorted. So that loaded skin and deeper tissues become distorted and put a strain on the tissues and the cytoskeleton. The cytoskeleton then begins to stretch and instead of being a round cell, it's now going to distort into more oval shape and develop um, pores that then can leak and and, um, pass fluids into the interstitial space. This process then of strained on the tissues in the cytoskeleton actually results in a hindrance of transport processes, both transport out of the cells, transport within the interstitial space and as well as um, perfusion. So we have in addition impact on um, lymphatic flow becomes obstructed and we develop this inflammatory edema interstitial pressure is increased, and then that further, that increased pressure further increases the mechanical load on tissues. So it's a culmination in a circular process of what's going on to help that escalates the damage on the, to the cells. And it's interesting to look at that magnitude and distribution of mechanical forces because it's quite variable. It's not something that's just everybody sits and everybody experiences a certain amount of pressure um, that causes this distortion, but rather it's influenced by a lot of factors such as the anatomical structure, the size and shape of tissues, um, even biophysical properties like the water content of the tissues, the stiffness of tissues. So for example, muscle, muscle is much stiffer than skin, so the muscle will be um, more easily damaged or more quickly damaged and the strength of the tissue that's involved. And what what is also important about this magnitude distribution is that it's not static. It changes over time due to aging, lifestyle diseases, a number of factors. So in fact, the response to applied loads is non-homogenous. You can't predict exactly what kind of, how much pressure that tissue can tolerate. Um, based on just the size of the person or the surface they're sitting on. So just to look at this another way, the mechanisms of cellular damage associated with pressure ulcers then begins with this direct uh, deformation. That's like the triggering effect, the triggering event, which leads then to an inflammatory response and edema in interstitial tissues which then leads to ischemia because that interstitial, um, because of the interstitial pressure, putting pressure against the capillaries as well as obstructing blood flow, which then leads to lymphatic occlusion. So it's a sequential event that goes on. However, when a person already has uh, coexisting conditions that that, um, result in ischemia, that ischemia can precede direct deformation so so that it will actually accelerate and enhance and accelerate the amount of tissue destruction that actually can occur and the same when we have ischemia that's concurrent with a thrombotic event like we've seen with covid you could have an inflammatory response that already exists and then the ischemia is accelerated and um and enhance, or perpetuated This is just to depict, again, what I was saying as far as how the cells are this is un, it's just a typical cell that's not under any stress. And then when the stress occurs, you can see the little pores that will develop, leaking the cytos- the contents of the cell into the interstitial fluid and in the interstitial space and causing um, damage to the tissues. And this is a drawing that Dr. Geffen has created. They actually show how it's a quite a vicious cycle of what occurs. You have the triggering event and you have the tissue deformed, damage to the cells leading to some cellular death. So there's a deformation trauma. Then we get into this inflammatory response where we have the inflammation because you've had leakage of um, cellular contents and you have an increasing pH as a result of that process leading to more edema being passed into the, into, interstitial tissues, additional interstitial pressure being increased, and then the ischemic changes that can follow from that, from the pressure of that interstitial fluid. So it just becomes a vicious cycle of, of damage. So this then represents the updated concept of the pressure time curve that we saw previously. So that what we know is that there's really um, sufficiently high loads can cause damage within minutes at a macroscopic level. And this is um, Geffen now often referred to as a Geffen curve. And this may be familiar when you think about the Braden and Bergstrom conceptual framework for studying the etiology of pressure ulcers, where they identified, you know pressure, the factors that indif- independently impact pressure and then factors that impact tissue tolerance. And so you can see extrinsic factors. And I what I added in here is a skin temperature because we know now with, especially with device related pressure injuries that the temperature is, is a key factor that really does influence the risk of developing uh, device related injuries. And in terms of intrinsic factors, we know that <clears throat> Nutrition and age are very important variables as well as uh, what we recognize now is, especially in diabetics, this endothelial cell dysfunction is probably an intrinsic factor that actually impacts the tissue tolerance. And what I think is one thing that we have to consider now is this concept of the skin tone or racial heritage, how do those impact in terms of an intrinsic factor? Is there something in that that we need to understand better as far as impacting um, the tolerance of tissue? How do you recognize and distinguish pressure-induced tissue damage from other types of damage on the skin? And it's, it's by understanding the cellular processes going on that will help us be able to make those distinctions. The other thing that I think is really important to point out is as we understand these cellular processes, this particular slide I like, uh, especially because it shows as the different processes that are occurring, the extravasation of leukocytes, the proliferation of you know leukocytes in the, in the, in the vascular supply as well as surrounding the vascular supply. And what we see then are again, indicators of inflammation, And we're going to be able to recognize by using these, by better understanding the cellular processes, we're going to be able to identify actual biomarkers for pressure injury. This was put forth by um, Dr. Professor uh, Zena Moore and her colleagues. But this is where we are. This is top level is at the skin level, the manifestation threshold where we see what we, how we look now at identifying pressure-induced tissue damage. We look at the skin level and we see visible changes and we see epidermal tissue disruption. We may see uh, changes in tissue like the color or the warmth. And that's manifestation level. And that means that we've missed all this other stuff going on down below and that that cellular process, all that deformation, all that interstitial um, exudate and tissue or fluid that we see collecting the lymphatic obstruction that's going on, all of those things are depicted down here. The reperfusion injury that's occurring, the ischemic events, the lymphatic obstruction, deformation, all these, the toxic metabolites, all those things going on down below. We haven't seen that. So, so we're looking at the top, like the top of the iceberg, basically, and igno- and not being able to really see what's going on down here. And, <clears throat> what we want to do is is focus less on the manifestation, learn more about the damage threshold so we can see what is going on down here, and then be able to recognize these indicators so that we can can actually intervene at this window of prevention and prevent this destruction that's going on down below. So that when we see this at the manifestation level, we are really late to the game. And what we want to do is begin to change our our ability to assess what's going on with the skin and the deeper tissues so that we can actually intervene and prevent the pressure injury to start with. So I think that's um, kind of the excitement of better understanding the pathophysiologic processes of the etiology of pressure injuries and to to expand our thinking. So we stop um, looking at just ischemic events as being the precipitators, but really it is the damage to the cell and the tissues and their ability to perform. So I appreciate your attention and um, look forward to hearing how we hearing the rest of the conference and how all this unfolds.
0: Next, we're going over to the virtual auditorium to see Jacqueline Brace presenting some clinical cases. She's talking about the importance of differential diagnosis in pressure injury. So over to you, Jacqueline.
3: So what is this? Is this pressure injury? Uh, Differential diagnosis and description is what we're gonna be covering today. The... um, At the end of the session, we want you to be able to distinguish between moisture associated skin damage and incontinence associated dermatitis. We're gonna talk a little bit about
4: uh, what it means to have moisture associated skin damage. That is a general term for inflammation or skin erosion caused by prolonged exposure to a source of moisture such as urine and stool and sweat, wound drainage, saliva and mucus. And I know this may be like Oh, yeah, that makes sense, but you would be surprised at when you're talking with the nurses at the bedside, they, don't, they discount sweat. They discount the fact that this wound is just draining and draining and draining. They Oh, it's pressure or oh, it's, you know, some sort of something else. So many times I have to bring them back to definitions uh, in order to ensure that we are all on the same table. Incontinence associated dermatitis, sometimes referred to as perennial dermatitis or perineal, I should say, dermatitis is an inflammation of the skin associated with exposure to urine or stool. Elderly adults and those in long-term care facilities are at risk for urinary or fecal incontinence and IAD. And also, this can be anyone that has any type of disability that inhibits their ability to get to the bathroom at the appropriate time.
3: For a patient who has some breakdown. And when, when you turn, you look at the age and you think it's 32 years old, this doesn't make sense. Okay, he has Crohn's disease. So I went, and went to see this poor guy. Here he had been draining for a while. He was wearing briefs, not telling his, his girlfriend um, and making excuses why not to sleep overnight. He had actually fistulas draining from his Crohn's disease. And he was just too embarrassed to go to the doctor, tell the doctor. So by the time he actually was admitted, around his anus, he had multiple fistulas, so much breakdown from the amount of drainage. And then of course, not only did he have the moisture associated dermatitis, he had folliculitis and cellulitis because of all the stool that was leaking out. But again, a 32 year old going to the ER for something He was very embarrassed by this. So with the CAT scan, you can actually, it was wild seeing the CAT scan, seeing all the fistulas coming from his bowel. So of course he had surgery, he had um, ileostomy, and um, he eventually did heal. He realized, because he was so dead set against getting the ileostomy, that when he got it, he's like, wow, this isn't bad. He had his pouch, he knew what to do, and his backside was finally healed, and he had no more pain. But when I looked at the admission paperwork with the nursing assessment, it was just uh, moist skin, patient and moist skin. Nobody really looked at these holes. So when I put the Q-tip in very cautiously, just about a centimeter, just to see what we were dealing with, then I stopped. So making sure that we go back in the chart once we assess and really give it the true diagnosis that it needs and, and the treatment for the outside skin, believe it or not, I love the baby stuff, Um, Desitin on his backside because it was cooling and soothing for him and uh, it worked very well. Um, But again, teaching him the care of the ileostomy was a piece of cake because at that point, he knew that's what he needed. This patient here, I was consulted for hemorrhoids. Same thing, a man thought he had hemorrhoids, was treating himself with Preparation H, that didn't work. He was putting tux pads in. And this was going on for quite a while. Then he started breaking down. By the time he came to the emergency room, he had multiple issues down here. So he has the moisture associated dermatitis from all the drainage, but they're not hemorrhoids. It was anal cancer. So when they did the CAT scan, he actually had adenocarcinoma of the bowel and he had extension into bilateral buttocks tissue. So he had the edema, from the cancer that was growing from his rectum. Then he has, I don't know if you can see it uh, on the screen, he has all these pustulas from the cellulitis, and then of course, he has a deep tissue injury. So in that note, that assessment, we've gotta treat the deep tissue injury by offloading him. We have to treat that cellulitis, and we've gotta take care of that um, um, drainage for him to try to wick that fluid away so use the diaper you can see the amount of drainage and that had just been changed he just copious amounts we had to get some healing happening here while they were treating him for the the cancer because they didn't want to go in and do surgery right away so we had to take care of iv antibiotics local care which was antibiotic ointment actually to his took us back here and in here because of the pain we put some lidocaine gel two percent just to take away the pain for him and then we actually used a product that would wick fluid away and we would tuck the pad between his cheeks. And he knew every time it was wet, he would take it out. So again, back in here, back in the day, um, there was a product Xenoderm back then. We put that on there again, because that was soothing. It increased some blood flow back here to help him with the pain. Um, but again, he was getting embarrassed. He, and, and he actually just thought he had hemorrhoids down there. He had no clue that he had uh, anal cancer. This one here, I felt so bad in the office. He came in for bilateral uh, assessment uh, for gangrene toes. His left foot was dry, his right foot was wet. So rush him off. We had some um, ABIs done right away. Uh, we didn't play around working in vascular surgery because right next door was the lab. And they would just say, like, bring him in or give them 10 minutes and we'll bring them in. So, or bring the machine to the room. So it was just fantastic working with that group. So in, in looking at his feet, getting them all cleaned up, getting them wrapped, he says, I, got, I, I messed myself. I said, okay, I'll get to you because we need a two-person lift. I felt bad. I actually had him sitting in the wheelchair the whole appointment and everything. And then when we get him up there, he says, yeah, I got a rash down there. It hurts. This was the rash? Uh-uh. What he had was stool, of course, C. diff stool that ate away his tissue. He had a pressure ulcer right here. You can't see it in there, but his anus was all broken down. Underneath his scrotum, my finger went up to this joint right here, right into his scrotum, and it tunneled down into his leg. He thought he had a rash. They were treating him with just some kind of moisture cream on his backside, Necrotizing fasciitis. Um, He eventually, he did not make it, by the way, with his severe PAD, uh, with the severe infection here, overall health, uh, he, he went septic and he did pass away. But for him to say, I have a rash down there and not really know what was going on, um, goes again to say, we need to make sure that we have the aides talking to us, what's going on down there and make sure that we do the skin checks because he had, again, several different diagnoses that pulled into one and it was necrotizing fasciitis. So we're gonna, I'm gonna show a picture And whoever wants to answer it, go ahead and raise your hand. So what is this? COVID, pressure, arterial. And this poor lady here, she had the pressure ulcer And she went back out to the hospital. When she came back in, again, I don't know if the show's purple or not for you, but this is purple, it is indurated, and there's an extension. She had an occlusion, um, poor thing had a stroke actually. And when they uh, sent her in, she had the pressure ulcer. She had gone back out because of some vomiting blood and they kept her for a couple of days and she came back in and extended. How did that happen though? She had boots while well, she had those multipotes boots, it didn't fit her foot because she has a very thin, tiny foot and her heel actually was sitting through it. So this right here is from the pressure from the boot because her heel came through it. So she wasn't properly fitted. So I know there's different types of boots out there, um, but always, always, always take a look. Um, there was one nursing home that I was going into that would wash the boot and give it to someone else, wash the boot and give it to someone else um, just to save some money. And I get that. I really do because they were washed, but we got to make sure that the boot does fit. So right here, the patient did have a shearing injury uh, when they were transferring the patient from a stretcher to the radiology table and then back. But then when the patient went back to the ICU, started breaking down with the DTI right here. So you're right. We started out with a shear, and then it evolved into a tissue injury, pressure injury. Documenting what you see and explaining, and now that the treatment had to be changed, we of course got new orders and changed the treatment. This is a PANIS, by the way, okay? PANIS. It stained a little, it stained a little purple because of the treatment. A Little bit of background, end-stage dialysis, renal, and uh, on, uh, on dialysis and seizure, I'm sorry, uh, diabetic out of control and given herself insulin. Okay? So looking at all of those with the pain, the pain doesn't match the wound. So her pain was all the way down into here. This was all indurated, going all the way down and all the way up. Casoflaxis, yep, yep. So she went into the OR. The renal docs wouldn't treat until they had a biopsy. So with all of what was going on, you just assume it was calciflaxis, but the surgeon had to go in. Instead of taking just a little biopsy of the area, she kept going and going and going and going and created this big wound for this lady. And of course, the the tissue biopsy confirmed the diagnosis of calciflaxis and so she came in and she was complaining of a lot of pain um and this was extending from her her i'd say hip all the way down but the presentation was shingles okay um it wasn't normally in the linear because besides having it on her thigh she had it on her right side also so we were kind of like what could this be because she had 30 surgeries to her abdomen. They did a flap, believe it or not. They took muscle from her back and did a free flap to her abdomen um, because of all the surgeries that she had gone through. So we actually did do the culture and it did confirm that it was shingles, but we had started her on treatment uh, to begin with because uh, we weren't quite sure what it was because the presentation wasn't the normal presentation. And this was pre-COVID time, so we didn't even have that in our heads, but she wasn't on any antibiotics at that time. Um, we just don't know where this all came from. She just came in for a check on her belly and had been healed uh, just as a follow-up with the general surgeon. And, and she says, look at this, the pain, the burning. And she did complain, which was strange too. She had some itching going on, but not where the lesions were. Um, so again, the, the wound culture or the, the, the postula culture actually confirmed the diagnosis and the treatment that we did. And one of the things with, with wounds, all wounds, I tell patients is wash with soap and water, let the bubbles run over the, water, uh, the wound. And I have them use bounty paper towel, the quicker picker up, because even the new commercial shows that it traps bacteria. It holds a lot of fluid, doesn't fall apart. Because if you use your towels and put them into the washer, if you're not, if you're picking up bacteria, it gets into your other clothes. Plus, a lot of them think this is a special thing. This is a Jackie thing. Wow, using Bounty paper towels to use, wash around, let the bubbles run, and then pat dry because it soaks up uh, the bacteria and it dries them well. And uh, they say, why Bounty? I said, because it's a quick, but the, the, I like saying it. And they're like, you're crazy, can I use, can I use Sparkle? And I said, well, it kind of falls apart, but use whatever you want. But uh, you know, it's just, again, something special that they think
0: that I'm telling them to do, and it's just good wound hygiene. Next session is with Professor Barbara Bates Jensen, and she's going to give us a really comprehensive look at humans and technology. Uh, Partnership to Pressure Injury Prevention. So over to you, Professor Jensen, in the Virtual Auditorium.
5: So here's our objectives for this session. We want to be able to present to you uh, essentially the use of technology, what's currently known out there in terms of using technology to detect pressure injury. Uh, So, I'll describe the science behind much of the technology that's out there, share the data that we currently have on it.
0: And so, that's what
5: we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about existing technologies that would help improve and augment visual skin assessment, give us essentially more objective data in terms of what's occurring below the surface of the skin, so we might intervene more effectively. We're going to look at four technologies. Um, Most of these technologies, you'll hear the advantages and disadvantages as we go through. So we'll look at thermography. We're going to look at ultrasound. We're going to look at skin blotting. And then we're going to look at subepidermal moisture. So let's start with thermography. So the coolest thing about thermography is the pictures. They're so pretty. Look how bright and colorful they are. Uh, That's not a wound or a skin, but look how pretty it is. It's so cool. Um, And so that's one of the issues with thermography, as you'll see as we go forward. But essentially, when we think about thermography, we're looking to use it because we know that temperature can be an indicator of tissue perfusion and hence potential tissue damage. And in fact, long wave infrared thermography um, measures radiant heat coming off the body surface. And so that's what we're attempting to measure with thermography. We can use thermography to capture a picture of the area of concern and use it to detect specific tissue temperature differences. That's kind of the science behind thermography. What the data shows is that you can use some types of thermography to detect pre-visual problems in the tissues, uh, such as a stage one pressure injury, such as a deep tissue pressure injury. Um, it has the potential for helping you identify local hypothermia or low temperature changes um, that may actually warn you of impending pressure injury damage before it occurs on the surface of the skin. However, thermography is not easy to use. All right. To get a thermography image requires that you have excellent lighting that can be turned off so that you're in the dark, or it requires that you put a bag over the area that you're trying to get the image of so that you can capture an adequate thermal image of the tissues. Additionally, it requires that you know what you're looking at. So you've got to have someone that knows thermography, that's expert enough in it, that can actually interpret the image for you. I think the third thing is pretty obvious on the screen. Currently, thermography is pretty big. This is something that you have to actually plan to use in the clinical setting, in terms of you know bringing it into the room and using it um, with patients in a screening fashion, not as quick as one might think. Once you get the thermography image, you have to use software programs to actually help you interpret what those images mean. There is movement in some of this, in that we know that the temperature difference between healthy normal tissues and tissues that are damaged um, is about three to four degrees um, Celsius, so that there is a temperature differential between healthy tissues and not healthy tissues. Um, We think that there's at least one study that shows that this elevated temperatures of about one, just over one degree Celsius, may actually indicate an impending pressure injury. Um, Again, tricky to use in the clinical setting. I was going to say it might be getting better because there are now some devices that can be used with a cell phone where you can actually attach a thermography camera to the cell phone and use that to get your thermography images. same problems exist. Someone has to be able to then interpret those images so that you actually can use the data. Um, most of these, this particular device uses a specific software program to help users actually interpret the data. So, this type of technology might not be useful in all healthcare settings. If you think about a wound clinic, this might work very well. It can also tell you other things like infection status and that type of but it may not be as useful in terms of detecting pressure injury as other technologies. Here's just an example to show you from the little cell phone one. These are the types of images that you can capture. Currently, that type of device is being used to help evaluate burn injuries and specifically to look for vascular supply to those burn injuries. And again, you can see that that one thermography image kind of tricky to know what that exactly means hence the fact that you typically use this type of technology with a software program that provides additional background for you so what about ultrasound so ultrasound is very popular if you've been in an emergency room recently you know we're using ultrasound in emergency rooms to n- do nerve blocks all over the place in an effort to try to decrease opioid use for minor procedures in the ER. So ultrasound is being used quite a bit. And actually, if you look at the data we have on ultrasound, it's been around for a while in terms of potentially being a method of objectively detecting pressure injury. When you use ultrasound, we're looking for four distinct characteristics on the ultrasound image that have been shown to be related to pressure injury. Hypoechoic lesions, unclear layered structure, discontinuous fascia, and heterogeneous hypoechoic areas. So on the top ultrasound image, that's normal tissue, normal healthy tissue. I have put yellow arrows so that you can see very clearly those tissue layers. So when we're looking at unclear tissue layers, you would expect those layers to not be as clear as you can see on that ultrasound image. The bottom ultrasound image shows you an ultrasound taken of a pressure injury site. And if you can see these areas that are circled in red, Those show you those hypoechoic areas that are indicative of pressure injury. So with ultrasound, as as a pressure injury develops, those muscle layers become less clear. So hence the fact that you're looking for these unclear layers in the structure as you view that ultrasound image. There's also one study that suggests there may be very specific Patterns of the ultrasound image that helps us understand specific things related to the pressure injury. For instance, pressure injuries that present with a cloud-like pattern generally show more deterioration and the size of those lesions increases versus those lesions that present with a more cobblestone-like pattern actually end up decreasing in size and remain stable over time. You can see that ultrasound technology has been used to both try to detect pressure injuries as they're developing but also to try to monitor existing pressure injuries and look for damage. The other, the other thing with ultrasound is that it's tricky to use in clinical practice. To get an ultrasound of a patient requires that you bring in the little ultrasound card or at least bring in the ultrasound device and you have to have a tech. You have to have someone that actually knows how to get an adequate image with the ultrasound device. And then, kind of the real kicker, like thermography, you have to have someone that can interpret the image. Um, and that's not particularly easy. So it's not as practical and clinically friendly as one might think. Quite useful for very specific uh, Specific purposes, but may not be as useful for us in terms of trying to screen a large number of patients and to monitor them over time to look for that early pressure injury long before we see anything on the surface of the skin. There's one study, fairly recently, that did look at uh, both thermography and ultrasound and suggested that use of both of those technologies might actually allow us to better detect deep tissue injury. But now you're making it even more impractical for clinicians to use at the bedside because now you're bringing in multiple devices to try to get at that injury, right? So our third technology is not quite ready for prime time yet, but I would keep an eye on it because it's definitely coming, and that's skin lighting. Um, Wound blotting has been available for a number of years for use at the bedside where you take essentially a piece of cellulose type paper, stick it in the wound and it allows you relatively quickly at the bedside to determine if there are proteases present in the wound bed which may (laughs) indicate biofilm development or other problems and can help drive different treatment changes. Skin blotting uses those same types of principles, but in this case, we're applying a small piece of cellulose-type paper to the skin for a period of time, generally from one to five minutes, to essentially capture proteins that are released by the surface of the skin over the bony prominence where we have concerns. Then we can pull out those proteins and essentially look at them in terms of biomarkers for a developing pressure injury all of this has been done thus far in rat studies, so animal studies, and a couple of very small human studies. So that's when I that's what I meant when I said it. it's not quite ready for prime time, but certainly something we want to keep our eyes on as we move forward. There's four main biomarkers that we're picking up, four proteins that we're picking up with the skin blotting technique. The first is interleukin 1 alpha It's a marker for ischemia and reperfusion injury. Makes sense that we would pick that up, right? The second is VEGF, so vascular endothelial growth factor. It's actually a marker for interstitial flow and for lymph drainage, so it increases when that's problematic. The third is heat shock protein 90 alpha. It's a marker for cell deformation. And the last is plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, which, again, is a marker for tissue ischemia. So when you look at those, you can see that all of those proteins are directly related to the pathophysiology of the pressure injuries, and if we have the ability to pull those proteins off of skin blotting, it would give us a very uh, objective method of screening for pressure injuries. But as I said, not quite ready for prime time, but definitely keep your eyes on that technology. This is what it looks like, just so you have a visual of what what that actually would look like. So on the left, you can see the little cellulose papers that are applied to the skin. Um, This particular study looked at a positive control and a negative control, so you can actually see the proteins that are coming out onto the blotting paper prior to analysis for the proteins. So our fourth technology, I think, has absolutely the most promise in terms of helping us level the playing field and eliminate health disparities, and that's surface electrical capacitors. So I should warn you, So this is the area where I've been doing my research for easily the last 10 years. So while I have absolutely no financial thing to disclose to you, Of course I'm biased towards this. I've been researching it for 10 years. So there's that aspect to keep in mind as we go forward, too. So surface electrical capacitance really looks at the whole idea of the body as an electrical field. And so we use devices that transmit high-frequency, low-power electromagnetic waves, generally below 300 millimeters of uh, megahertz, sorry, megahertz. And we do this via these small electrodes that are placed on the skin in these small handheld devices. So the electrodes work by essentially transmitting the energy into the tissues. That energy then interacts with the body's own electrical field and essentially, for lack of my physics background here, bounces off the water in the tissues. And so as you have that initial cell injury, initial cell damage, that triggers an inflammatory response in the tissues. That early inflammatory response causes vascular permeability and allows more cells and more fluids into that interstitial space in that local area. So what you're picking up with this is really localized inflammatory changes at the very early stage. So that as subepidermal moisture values increase, your inflammatory response, your amount of edema in the tissues is also increased. So You can use this type of device to interrogate deeper tissues. So the device I've used in my research interrogates through the dermal tissue, um, but not beyond that. You could get devices that actually interrogate all the way through the fat tissue or all the way into the muscle tissue. What we know from um, the research is that once you have muscle damage, that damage is um, almost immediately Uh, transferred to the dermal tissues as well, which is why you don't have to interrogate that deeply in the body to pick up that early inflammatory change. Um, I I essentially use a depth of about 2.5 millimeters or less to actually get at that dermal tissue to pick up that early inflammatory change. What we're really looking for here is at both a cell and a tissue level. So at the cell level, we're looking at that inflammatory response that's initiated from that cell injury. At the tissue level, what we see is as the cells become more permeable, as the vascular vasculature becomes more permeable, you see edema in the interstitial space. And that's exactly what we pick up with surface electrical capacitance and subepidermal moisture. So this is just a diagram giving you an idea of of how this type of technology works. So the way it works is you have measuring units, and you can see on the slide, the gray areas indicate a measuring unit that's been cut in half, so that you can see where the electrodes would be. And so the the impulse goes through the tissues into the dermal tissue, and essentially is reflected back up into the electrodes and displayed um, in various time points on the device itself so what is subepidermal moisture or sem well so the real story behind that is it's a term that i coined 14 years ago because i didn't quite know what to call it so i knew that i was measuring moisture or water within the tissues not on the surface of the epidermis hence the sub-epidermal moisture Um, And so it's just a term that was coined to describe that and differentiate that type of edema, that localized edema, as opposed to moisture that we see on the surface of the skin, from things like drainage or incontinence, right? So that's where the term came from. Um, The device that I co-invented is the SEM scanner and the SEM provisium. Um, It actually takes what what we knew from the research in terms of measuring that sub-epidermal moisture level and actually improved based on the devices that were available at the time. The advantage to this is that it actually controls for the user pressure. So if you think about that, that might not seem like that big a deal. But remember what we're trying to measure. It's very localized edema in an area. And so if you have people that are taking a device and pushing it against that area too firmly, you're actually pushing the localized edema out so that you're not going to get an accurate reading. So because the device actually controls for the user pressure, the readings are much more accurate. There's much less variance in the data. My research was done with not the SEM scanner didn't exist quite then, um, but essentially looked at this type of technology and looked to see, could it actually help us better detect pressure injuries?
0: That was a fantastic session from you, Professor Jensen, and thank you so much for sharing all the technology that we have at our fingertips. Next, we go to Dr. Jonathan Johnson, who's a wound care specialist from Washington, DC. He's going to be talking to us about the difficulties of navigating the challenge of skin tone disparities. So over to Dr. Johnson in the virtual auditorium.
1: Some of our uh, long-term care
6: patients, as you can definitely see, this patient has a pressure ulcer of the sacral and the buttocks, various areas of healing, but you can definitely see the epithelialization in those areas. We want to make sure, obviously, we're reducing pressure. Nutrition is obviously important. We want to make sure we're focusing on any comorbidities. Uh, and this patient, we actually ended up grafting. So we used a cellular tissue product, were able to graft this patient, had a great result. This is a stage four pressure uh, ulcer to the heel. Uh, you can definitely see the bone is actually evident right where that um, bloody drainage is uh, at the right side of the, uh, of the photograph here. And so we ended up debriding it and we also ended up grafting this patient as well. But what I want you to look at is the area of the plantar aspect that has the skin changes that are different than the upper portion of of the ankle and of the foot. So you just want to make sure that you're adequately measuring the wound and looking at those areas of skin change. All right. So this is a patient that... Had a little bit of a a skin tear, uh, and this was more of a shearing injury on the buttock. But we're looking at this uh, presentation here because we're looking at the skin changes. So that epithelialization, the patient has had multiple um, shearing injury and some pressure ulcer injuries as well, but they've healed. So this is definitely what we want to see, but we can see the different changes in a patient of color. All right, this is one of our stage four pressure ulcer patients. We actually ended up backing this patient, uh, and they had an excellent result, one of our long-term patient um, in one of our long-term facilities. But if we're looking at the different changes and the different colorization of the skin, we can see a darker pink. We can see the epithelial tissue. We can see the patient's regular dermal uh, distribution as well. And he had a great result, so we were really, really happy with this patient. All right. This was uh, also a right buttock stage four that we ended up healing and then a sacral ulcer that you can see to the left. I wanted to show the variations in skin changes and the variation of uh, skin color when you're you're observing your patient and clinically treating your patient. We are still working on this young man currently. Hopefully he will have a great result. This is one of our stage four uh, sacral pressure ulcers. You can see the maceration tissue that is around the wound edge. He had a little bit of epiboli, so we definitely made sure that we removed that epibole. Obviously, you wanna make sure that you're re-injuring uh, those skin borders so that they have the ability to heal back in that fourth stage of, of wound healing. Because remember, chronic wounds are stalled in your inflammatory phase. So he had a great result. This was a patient that ended up coming in to see us uh, at my office and um, had a huge issue with a first ray amputation that was not healing. We ended up healing it, and this is the result, and you can definitely see some some of the skin changes, but also make sure you're observing the toes, make sure you're observing the nails, because some of those changes also can have issues with the wound as well. All right, another stage four. We can see the skin changes, some of the epithelialization. We're really, really fortunate that we uh, were looking at the skin margins being able to contract and the wound improving. All right, so this was one of our um, difficult patients. And she basically was found down at home. And obviously, as you guys know, based on a lot of issues with COVID, the resources that some of our patients may or may not have as far as getting into long-term care is not as adequate as we would like pre-COVID. So she came in, we had to debride that area of that eschar. This is an unstageable wound because she's been found down. We cannot clearly see that wound bed. But we removed a lot of that tissue. We ended up vacuuming her, but you can definitely see the various changes of her skin. And you want to make sure when you're looking at your measurements that you're adequately reviewing every single aspect of the skin. I think I have about 400 more of these. So, Actually, Just kidding. We're almost done. So lower extremity wounds. Some, sometimes we're treating our long-term patients for cirrhosis or dry skin dermatitis and sometimes you're seeing lymphedema that is resolving or venous stasis issues that are resolving. So you wanna make sure you're adequately moisturizing the lower extremity in some of your patients, because this is definitely a patient that needs moisturization. And the more that we improve that moisture balance, the better the wounds and the skins uh, tend to do. All right, and this is one of our, uh, this is one of our ankle patients. Uh, actually had a pressure ulcer at the Achilles site. And so you can definitely see the skin changes. You wanna make sure you're removing that eschar area as much as you can and increase moisturization so that the skin is healthy and can heal. stage four that's resolving. Um, we've been working with this wound an extended period of time, but you can see the maceration changes. You can see the uh, 100% granulation tissue. We wanna make sure that you're looking at all aspects of the skin. Another similar patient, we're actually grafting this patient. We were using a cellular tissue product on this patient. You can see kind of the film um, uh, at the top of the wound. Great, great uh, result. All right. And you can still see the epithelial changes, but you can also see some uh, uh, some of the granulation tissue and some of the changes in the wounds. Just make sure you're adequately... Uh, reviewing all reviewing all those skin changes. One more of our awesome graphs. That graph actually did very, very well. I think that's it, finally. So thank you for your attention. I just definitely wanna say this has been an awesome form.
0: Thank you very much, Sharon, for that very detailed look at the effect of surfaces on pressure ulceration. Next one is from Professor Amit Geffen. He's Professor of Biomechanical Engineering at Tel Aviv University. He's going to give us a little look into technology, into contemporary pressure injury prevention. So over to you, Professor Geffen. Thank you for joining us tonight.
7: Um, Today, in the uh, short time that I have, is to take you into a journey to my world, which is um, not a clinical world, uh, but the world of bioengineering. Um, We are applying methods from... um, classic um, engineering, such as mechanical engineering, as well as uh, methods from uh, biomedical engineering as it is applied in other fields of medicine, such as cardiovascular or the PDX, for um, understanding the etiology, and um, on a practical aspect, um, for um, conducting efficacy research, which is basically looking at alternative technologies for wound prevention and care, and trying to understand uh, which one works better. If you only have time to read one paper following my talk, um, if you obviously want to um, understand more about the role of bioengineering in um, wound care, read this, uh, which is um, our contemporary understanding of the etiology of pressure ulcers. With that said, um, pressure ulcers are uh, essentially a biomechanical problem they are caused by, as the name, implied, and, and the name implies, um, mechanical forces, pressures. And these pressures um, or mechanical forces can um, originate from the body weights on um, forces, the, the body mass, or um, due to an external um, interaction, such as with a medical device. And um, I'll focus on the larger topic today, but um, The cells in the tissues, which are the living um, elements, the the, the living structures, um, they don't really care and they don't really know if the mechanical forces are originating from um, the mass of the body or from um, an external object. What they are um, exposed to is mechanical deformations and distortions, shape distortions. And these shape distortions, can last for very long times if, um, for example, the patient is not changing posture or if the uh, medical device is applied uh, for prolonged periods, such as with um, respiration equipment. The um, injury cascade, which I have uh, investigated and described um, over uh, many years and um, have published um, substantially about, including in this um, centerpiece um, paper that i mentioned previously, starts um, because um, the first cells are affected by these sustained tissue deformations and are losing their um, ability to um, control the transport of uh, molecules and ions from the cell body outwards or from the uh, uh, interstitial environment into the cell bodies and that can happen within minutes. Um, We um, have very strong and established evidence for that from um, laboratory work where we look at the permeability of cell walls of the plasma membranes of cells under the full conditions Um, And we see how that permeability of the cells increases to the point where there are micro pores, micro holes in the cell walls that basically um, make the precise um, and well controlled mechanisms of a normal healthy cells um, in terms of control of transport redundant. Um, as as these pores allow basically the inflow and the outflow of anything from large molecules to uh, small ions um, into the cell bodies or outwards from the cell bodies, uh, basically not allowing the cell to control what we call the hemostasis or the biological um, equilibrium uh, that cells must have in order to um, be alive. Um, to, um, to uh, provide the, the, the conditions for viable tissues. That's um, actually just the beginning of the story because once these first cells have died because of the sustained deformations, that triggers um, uh, the inflammatory system. Um, in, in simple words, um, hell breaks loose um, in, in the sense that the body now tries to recruit the um, inflammatory cells um, to fix that problem. Um, And uh, by by the mechanism of um, inflammatory response, the body dilates the vessels um, at the the site of the initial damage um, to allow the white blood cells to migrate um, and um, reach the um, damaged site and while the blood vessels dilate uh, they also become more permeable and that um, enables the uh, leakage of uh, plasma fluids into the interstitial space that's um typically would be a normal physiological response to an injury or pathophysiological response to an injury uh, which we all know as edema the problem with pressure ulcers with that specific scenario is that um, these body tissues are confined between a bony surface and an external surface. For uh, for a medical device, that would typically be a surface of a device such as a CPAP mask, uh, which is uh, very stiff compared to native tissues, uh, such as skin and fat. Um, and the on the other side, there is the bone. So the tissues cannot... Uh, swell, they cannot extend in volume, they cannot expand, uh, which they would normally do if it was just um, an edema on uh, a free surface tissue. And so the pressure in the tissue grows rapidly because the tissues cannot cannot swell. Um, and by the way, that, that um, also happens when um, a patient is lying supine um, on the bed or prone on the bed and the tissues are again confined like a sandwich between the bony elements, uh, say of the pelvis or of the ribs or of the forehead and the support surface, which is also semi-stiff compared to the body tissues. So in both cases, both the medical device related uh, pressure ulcer scenario and the body weight related pressure ulcers, it's the confinement of the tissues that causes the interstitial pressure to rise sharply, which of course then fuels the deformation Uh, cycle where the cells are now further deformed and and further distorted because of the increasing inflammatory um, edema-related pressure, and that uh, leads to more death. Now, at some point, the interstitial pressures would be um, so high that the vasculature would start to be affected, as well as the lymphatics and that flow that is also essential for cell viability would now start to start be compromised as well. And, um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nonlinear and accelerating um, uh, vicious cycle, as, um, as I've termed it in the literature. Because it, at each time point, um, another damage factor is um, added to the story. It starts with the deformation-induced direct cell dam- damage and death, then the inflammatory-related damage, then the um, ischemic related damage. And they all add um, on top of each other, they're cumulative, which is why the injury now accelerates um, rapidly. And by the time that it reaches the skin surface, because it um, typically is formed internally in the tissues, it's basically too late. And there is also already a mass of necrotic tissue under the skin if the skin is still intact.
0: So that's very interesting then, Ahmed. So essentially the, the mechanism, the biomechanics of these medical device related pressure ulcerations and the pressure ulcerations that we would have traditionally seen um, you know, in patients that were bedband is, is a different complete entity in terms of the, the actual peak strain and stresses, and the fact that there is no, no room for the tissues to expand as a related to that direct damage. Uh, and I think obviously clinically, and, you know, Harm, if you would like to join in on this section, is that obviously the, the microscopic cell damage is happening in minutes, but clinically that can take hours, I guess, to manifest itself. And so that's where your research has been vital in terms of identifying early markers to try and get through that window, that that window between the microscopic cell damage and macroscopic evidence of pressure
1: injury, I guess. Yes, yes, the first cell, you you rarely notice uh, the first cell gone. You're correct, but it will be helpful to figure out why that first cell has gone in the first place. And it can be, of course, it can be the obvious one. If you you have a cell between a a, a rock and a hard place, it will deform. But uh, I think there are many more uh, reasons uh, why um, these cells end up in those places. And that's what we have to figure out.
0: Yeah, And Amit, you've spoken before about the sort of the triad of structure, function and relationship. And I guess this became more evident in in COVID times, as I guess you're going to discuss now with us in terms of that triad and just trying to, I guess, reduce that peak strain and stress. And then also decreasing that exposure time, trying to bring those two elements together to reduce pressure injuries in in the COVID setting.
7: So I'll I'll let you continue. So obviously with the masses of patients hospitalized in ICUs and the huge numbers of devices connected to these patients. uh, Peaks in uh, pressure ulcer occurrences um, all over the world. And just from a statistical point of view, uh, when you have so many devices connected to so many patients, you see more of these vicious cycles that I've just described. And let me refer to um, one very common injury, which was also present uh, before COVID, and we have investigated it and published about it um, prior to the pandemic without knowing how um, so more common it would become um, as a result of the pandemic once the um, CPAP treatment became the first line of defense when you have uh, respiratory problems. Uh, and um, we already knew that this um, environment um, of respiratory masks is um, creating a very high risk to um, skin and underlying tissues because, first of all, it's uh, compressing uh, constantly and substantially against skin um, that was evolution from an evolutionary point of view was not prepared or, um, or, um, or structured to, uh, um, tolerate these, uh, sustained, um, loads. It's also that, um, it's a common practice of, um, nurses to, uh, make sure that there's no leakage of oxygen from the masks. So, uh, you know, sometimes the road to, uh, Hell is uh, paved with uh, good intentions.
0: <laughs> so they yeah, really, yeah. really make
7: sure that it's tight and correctly. Seal is
0: tight, yeah. yeah.
7: Um, and on top of that, um, there is um, high humidity, actually mm-hmm. almost 100% humidity inside the mosque um, and a high temperature. Um, and um, both of these are destructive um, to skip. And so it is not surprising that uh, we see a lot of these injuries, um, deep tissue injuries that then uh, present themselves at some point as open wounds uh, at the bridge of the nose and at the cheeks, classically, and also sometimes at the chin. And um, since there is no specific technology that has been developed from scratch to protect against, these wounds, um, nurses, knowing what's coming, are trying to improvise with different materials that they have, which are available to them, particularly dressings, or, uh, to, to basically cushion those regions to prevent the injury. And we've asked here a very simple bioengineering question, since they do that anyhow in, um, in, 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 um, as part of their practice. However, there is no specific engineering recommendation of what makes a good uh, material um, if it is addressing for, uh, for prophylaxis. Um, let's look at what they're using um, currently um, and, 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 and see if, for example, there is um, advantage to foams over hydrocolloids, whether new materials need to be developed and a very comprehensive study um, that we have published very recently in the International Wound Journal compares materials that are actually available today and that are used in practice, particularly different foam dressings versus hydrocolloids. Now, I, am in in my um, role as a professor of bioengineering, I've tested many materials in my labs um, over the years, and I never understood the uh, choice of uh, hydrocolloids because they're typically stiff materials that become even stiffer um, when they absorb moisture, Um, which, which of course, is very relevant here, both both because of the the vapor in the the mask and the uh, perspiration, the sweat from the skin. So that can add up to substantial quantities of um, moisture and wetness in the dressing. Um, But um, I'm also well aware of the fact that Nurses do not have my engineering intuition, and and and, and maybe that's a, that's a good thing, because they need to treat patients. <laughs> um, but I um, here um, I think that intuition, clinical intuition, um, is 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 not very relevant, because you really have to understand how these materials behave uh, when they are compressed first and foremost, and then when I, when they are compressed. And and they're also moist. Now, even foam dressings, if you look at foam dressings, a foam dressing is not a foam dressing. That is, foam dressings are not born equal just because they are called foam dressings. Each of them have a different microstructure. And each microstructure, if you look at them under the microscope, some of them are more dense, some of them are less dense. Each microstructure leads to different stiffness properties. And that's fundamental for nursing, for, um, um, nursing staff to understand that um, when, e- even if you classify a dressing to a certain family of products based on the material uh, type, it doesn't mean that they're all um, equivalent. And so we have looked at, at, at a number of those um, um, dressings and compared them. And we did that using um, very well established bioengineering methods uh, that are based on what we call in silico experiments or computational modeling. Uh, It's the same thing. And this is used in um, in all industries, basically in all modern industries, including for medical devices. It has been used in our own work for 20 years. And it allows you to provide visual and quantitative Simulations of how materials uh, behave under mechanical loads, as well as under thermal um, conditions, and um, that um, is true for when I say materials true for both the dressing material in this case and uh, the material that is being tested or evaluated for its protective efficacy. And um, we over the years have developed um, quite complex models of the human body of different regions of the human body as related to our pressure um, ulcer research line, for example, the head and the face. And basically in the computer simulations, we can uh, position these um, dressings representing their specific material properties and geometry, um, the way that nurses would cut them in real world practice and simulate not only what they do to the skin, but also what happens under the skin, say in in adipose tissue, uh, in subdermal tissues, when the dressings and the mask are applied to a patient. And that facilitates um, comparisons um, of the uh, dressing performances in terms of the um, state and distribution of mechanical loads at the surface of the skin under the mask, but also internally, and again, all the details are in the published work. Um, but you can basically very effectively differentiate between performances of different commercial products um, on the same patient, as you would never have, you would never be able to do that in clinical practice. There's no clinical trial that can do that which is hence the importance of bioengineering work because of the the power to compare um, using a robust um, and and standardized methodology, the performances of different products. This is the essence of efficacy research uh, related to this industry. So you could look at what happens when there's no dressing at all. You can look at what happens when there's a hydrocolloid dressing um, attached to the skin. And where, where and where where there are forms and and I think that you do not have to be a professor of bio, biomechanical engineering to understand that the hydrocolloid not only uh, not only that it doesn't provide protection, it may have even worse the condition with respect to no dressing, as mechanical or biomechanical or material engineers who understand uh hydrocolloid material properties would expect, and as I did, um, whereas the foams, as I said, are not all the same. You can look at these three foams that are um, compared here and, and see that, again, you don't have to be an expert in mechanics or biomechanics for that. Um, that this you, you see, basically, red is bad and blue is good. You see that some of them are um, inducing more red on the skin and some of them are inducing less red on the skin. And um, and 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 that's a guidance. That's a practical guidance for nurses uh, or healthcare professionals on what they need to choose and what type of evidence they need to look for when they make um, um, decisions about products, both in practice and for purchasing. So just to uh, just to wrap uh, just to wrap up on this. Um, this was not aimed to change the practice um, in terms of using dressings as cushioning materials um, under respiratory masks. This was aimed at assessing which specific um, dressing materials uh, would provide better protection than others.
0: And next, we're going to the virtual auditorium to have a session with Dr. Sharon Sonnenblom. She is a biomedical engineer, and she's going to talk to us about your bed, lie on it, or should you? And this will be a very in-depth look at the effect of surfaces on pressure ulceration. This is a great uh, session from Sharon, and, you know, be grateful if you stay with us on this one, because this will really be an eye-opener for all of us. Uh, Over to you, Sharon.
8: So now I want to talk about biomechanical risk, okay, this is one specific aspect of risk of an individual and it's the intrinsic characteristic of an individual soft tissue to deform in response to extrinsic applied forces. So frictions play playing a role in keeping people in their surface and so is the stability of the support surface. Okay, so that's another thing that's talked about a lot is stability. And in the last section, we'll talk about the trade-offs when you think about the stability of a support surface to help keep a person in the posture that they are most functional and most comfortable. And related to that is repositioning, right? Because if you remember what causes a pressure ulcer, Spend having too high of forces, but also spending too long at that particular force or pressure, right? So what do you do about that? In bed, you turn and you adjust position. In a wheelchair, you do weight shifts or you tilt and recline and you stand. So we have to think about support surfaces that allow for movement. And the last thing I wanna talk about is temperature and humidity over time. So in this graph, you're looking at more than a day worth of temperature and humidity. So I'm gonna show you exactly what's going on. So bear with me. This graph here at the bottom is temperature. And this graph here is humidity. And these lines, each vertical line represents a chain. The person's getting in the chair or out of the chair. And these three are when the person gets in the chair. These two are the person getting out of the chair. So here's an example of temperature. During that time, you see the temperature is increasing almost 10 degrees And then it hits a steady state. During that same time, you mostly have an increase in humidity as well. Then the person gets out of the chair and the temperature drops considerably, as does the humidity. So this is a person who spends many, many hours in the chair without getting out of their chair very frequently. Here's a different person. This person gets in and out of the chair all the time. Their vertical lines are green instead of pink, but it, they mean the same thing. And I didn't draw arrows because I thought it would make everybody dizzy. But you see that the temperature never hits steady state. It goes up and it comes down, it goes up and it comes down. And that's because they're getting in and out of the chair so frequently. Okay, so you have a different behavior when you when you have more frequent weight shifting and more frequent transfers, Your your microclimate is much different than for somebody who sits in the chair without as much movement. But ideally you wanna put people in a system that permits activity because movement dissipate heat and humidity. So let's start out with immersion and development, right? You remember those are the big silver eggs. How far do you sink and how much does the surface wrap around and contact your egg or your person? So when you don't have a lot of immersion and development, Your risk is that the surface may feel hard to people. It might be unstable, and there's less potential for pressure redistribution. But as you might recall, if you have somebody with low biomechanical risk, remember your able-bodied buttocks, you don't get much immersion and development anyway, but you don't really need it. So again, always think about your individual and what are their needs. When you have excessive immersion and development, some people feel like they're in a hole. Okay, it can be a very discomforting feeling. You might actually bottom out. It can also be difficult to reposition and functional mobility can be more difficult. So this becomes one of those trade-offs. If you have somebody who's very mobile, who doesn't stay in a position for too long because they're so mobile, you're looking for more of a trade-off here. You have to start with tissue tolerance. What is this individual's biomechanical risk? What is their mobility and function? And then you have the opportunity, this is a great place to use interface pressure mapping to compare. Right, this is the same person on two different surfaces, and you can see they got much better immersion and envelopment on the surface on the right than they did on the left. Even though they were seated by an expert clinician, we just couldn't get them uh, to immerse into that surface. Their thighs didn't sink in, they didn't distribute load around the pelvis nearly as well on one of the two surfaces. Stability is can an individual move, can an individual function, um, to the best of their abilities. And that's the goal. And it's not just about if you're on a support surface like a wheelchair cushion, it's not just the cushion, it's the entire seating system. And then microclimate is incredibly important. So what situations have high heat and moisture dissipation? Or, or what happens in those situations? When you have high heat and moisture dissipation, you get reduced skin temperature and drier skin. And that can be really good for someone who sweats profusely, is incontinent, or has poor thermoregulation but sometimes you get someone who gets cold too easily. On the other hand, when you have low heat and moisture dissipation, you get increased moisture and increased moisture, like we talked about, changes the mechanical properties of the tissue. You have increased friction and increased risk for tissue damage. Increased temperature also increases the risk for tissue damage. So in conclusion, I hope I've given you some insight that you can actually take back into your practice. There are many options out there, Um, I get frustrated sometimes when I hear folks not knowing if there's another answer out there. They feel like they've exhausted all the options. There are hundreds upon hundreds of products. And so, um, I'm not here to talk specifics, but I promise you, if you feel like you've run out of options, there's another one out there to help your clients. Um, Consider individual needs and goals. So, consider tissue tolerance and biomechanical risk when you're looking at support surfaces. And what are the goals of either your individual client or the care environment that you're in? And evaluate how well something is working. You know, it might all look good on paper, but once somebody's on the surface, you know, going back and looking at their skin is the only way to know if you've chosen well.
7: And it's a comparative analysis, right? You have several choices. Say you want to select between hydrocolloid and form, and then form which forms specifically, and then out of these choices of dressings that are or can be available at any major hospital, what what should you use? So this is very practical um, research that um, highly relates to real-world conditions, right? It's very clinically relevant. Is, yeah. Yeah. And um, sometimes um, it's it appears, as I said, with regards to the hydrocolloid dressing, that the dressing may actually increase rather than decrease the soft tissue loading levels at certain facial sites, which would increase the risk for an injury rather than decrease it. Again, the road to uh, to heaven path is path with good intentions, to hell in this case. Um, <laughs> yeah. But even, even if you look at, at foams, which are doing a much better job here, again, people should remember that um, foam dressings, as any other family of dressings, are not born equally. It all depends on the specifics of the material compositions and structure and microstructure. And they should look at the evidence um, that is specific to the product that they're thinking of in order to, um, to uh, improve their practice.
0: I think also, thank you, Amit. This is a really interesting, sort of studies that you're showing us. But also, I, I guess you're the ideal wound dressing in terms of the properties that you've discussed. I guess, need to have a couple of key factors. And part of that is being dynamic. So if there's fluid in that that sort of environment, the properties of that dressing may change, as you said, and become much more stiff, thereby actually increasing the risks. So in terms of if you were going to design an ideal wound dressing, what sort of key properties biomechanically would you want it to have in this sort of setting?
7: Yeah, that's a very good question. People are now using dressings um, that are, uh, have been designed initially originally for treatment in order to achieve prevention. Uh, there is no, as far as I know, and, and I think that I know, there is no product currently in the market that has been specifically designed from scratch for prevention of pressure injuries based on the etiological knowledge that we now have. And this is, um, I think, um, a mission for um, us um, as a community, um, obviously the industry is part of that community, to um, first of all decide if we want to have dressings that are, or or any other um, materials, you don't have to call it a dressing, um, that are specific for prevention. Um, or maybe we should have. Um, dual use products and this not this is not a clear this is not a clear-cut answer by the way. Uh, if you speak to some nurses which I do all the time, they will tell you, I don't want to have two different classes. we do two different types of products that would require two dive two types of uh, logistic systems and 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 two types of training models and all of that. I want to have a one in all product or all in one story product mm-hmm. um, and um, but then then you have to optimize because you have to you have to have something that is good for this and good for that. And obviously, from an engineering perspective, to achieve that, you have to make some compromises. And then what are the compromises that you make? For example, <laughs> I'll just give a very simple example, when you don't have skin as in a wound, you want the dressing to keep the temperature of the um, of the wound at the physiological level. So at, 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 at the range of temperatures that would be there if there was a skin intact at that place. If you have skin and you're using a dressing for prevention, it's a totally different game. You want the temperature to not increase too much at the interface between the, um, the dressing and the skin, because otherwise you end up with a lot of moisture, which is not good for skin integrity. So that's just one simple example, but there are many others. Um Importantly, and that's the message that I wanted to deliver today, if you use the tools such as computer modeling that i've um, that I focused on today, and there are other engineering methods um, that are more on the experimental side. But this is an example. If you use um, design tools that um, are modern and that um, employ the power of computer hardware and software that we have nowadays, you can make, both in the design process and in the decision-making process with regards to uh, what to buy for the hospital, basically, you can make these informed um, decisions um, and and you can um, weigh the uh, the pros and the cons of this decision or that decision in terms of the design, by the way, in in a very cost-effective manner, because it's all in the computer simulation. So you change change parameters in the computer instead of going to the workshop or going to the manufacturing facility and producing prototypes and then testing them and then going back, which is an endless and super expensive process. Here you can do everything computerized and um, reach an optimal design before you've even manufactured the first piece. Then you go and manufacture the piece and then you go and do some clinical studies.
0: Well, so uh, the technology is really interesting that's on the horizon. I mean, um, in October's issue of the International Wound Journal, they were talking a little bit about artificial intelligence, automated analyses, and machine learning algorithms. Which is also a, um,
7: a field that my, work, that my group is very active
0: on. on. Yeah, so that's sort of machine learning, picking up these patterns to try and predict, um, I guess, you know, in terms of early detection of these pressure injuries for prevention picking up patterns of you know, clinical, biomechanical, et cetera. Is there anything else on the horizon that you think that uh, we should be sort of looking out for technology-wise?
7: You've just said it. Um, I think that we can do so much with um, machine learning um, in terms of the individualized or patient-specific decisions with regards to risk assessment, as well as prognosis um, of uh, existing wounds and, and that will happen. Uh, we have, um, again, an active research line and uh, we see what can be done and what can be implemented. Even with cell phones, you know, today you don't need a sophisticated camera uh, that is dedicated for the purpose, which is another piece of you know, big compl- complex equipment, cumbersome equipment that um, is due to fail at some point and needs maintenance and all of that. Today, everybody holds a supercomputer with six cameras at their, um, at their pockets and that um and and they're all connected to cloud computing so that can be employed for better wound care and i think that this is where we're um, heading and uh, if uh, that's of interest you can um, look at uh, a review paper that we published recently a scoping review paper um, in advances in wound care mm-hmm. on uh, the use and potential of artificial intelligence and machine learning in uh, both the uh, um, risk assessment um, and uh, management of existing wounds
0: that's great and we'll we'll share that paper and all the links in the chat uh for all the audience so that's great and uh, come to you harm schmidt do you have any comments or questions
1: no no, no. the only question is is uh, by the time you apply a uh, a dressing that means you're acting after the uh after the ordeal or after the event has happened Um, You could also think about uh, what would be the interface between the mask and the tissue before you uh, uh, have a wound, so uh, I'm quite interested to hear what your opinions are, I'm I'm quite sure there will be all kinds of funny, soft, uh, silicon-like substances available, which might fulfill that role of of, uh, making sure that you don't have wounds in the first place. Yeah, and, and again,
7: that's the, that's the decision that uh, the industry will eventually make of whether we want to have different lines of products for prevention versus lines of products for treatment, um, because the fundamental requirements are not the same. Um, in, in some aspects, they are um, substantially different. And, and in the same way where you can study prevention, as with these computational models that I've shared today, You can also study treatment um, in in different manifestations. These models allow to look at uh, um, heat transfer and mass transfer, including fluid mechanics. So you can look at absorbency and retention in dressings. And we also have, and that's maybe a topic for next time, um, uh, technologies that we um, develop for efficacy research so basically robots of different wound etiologies sacral pressure ulcers, diabetic ulcers, venous leg ulcers we've developed um, basically all of them in my lab that um, simulate the real patient and real clinical conditions in terms of exudation, in terms of the viscosity of the exudate and, um, and you can Treat these robots as you would treat the patient, which is, of course, nice for training nurses, but the purpose in in, in the context of our work is to look at how the products perform, and then you can apply different products or different clinical um, uh, protocols for using the same product and and compare the outcomes quantitatively in a robust system that uh, is um, objective and standardized, and allow you to compare uh, performance metrics in a way that you would never be able to do in a clinical trial for obvious reasons. The the, the, the main reason is the variability across patients. Well, first of all, I'm glad to see that the conversation, wherever I go, um, is now focused on cell viability at the cell scale and um, at the molecular scale, such as inflammatory markers, where it used to be years ago when I started my journey in pressure uh, research um just around uh, blood flow and perfusion. So we uh, we've progressed um and, and and considerably. Um I do have a question um with regards to inflammatory markers. Um do you see that harm um, coming um next as um as a clinical technology um, or is more, is it more a research topic?
1: Uh, the problem we have right now is I think we have very much problem, uh, uh, problems in making sense of what we see. So we first have to figure out exactly what's going on with these uh, 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 markers before we can transfer that knowledge to the, to the practice. Because you, you know that if if you look at what IL, was it IL6 on healthy subjects, you see a massive uh, diversity in response already in healthy subjects. So we have to figure first out how these systems work. And I think what I am looking for actually, and we should be looking for, is not as much as a single um, uh, uh, cytokine, uh, but we look, have to look at motifs. Uh, because if it was a single cytokine, we would have found it. So we have to look at motifs, which means groups of cytokines acting in a certain Manner together, so we recognize it. I think that's will be the future. So and that will require once again a lot of uh, uh, computing power, uh, because one of the in the in the research, one of the mainstay of, of these researches I have done in the past are all based around computer power to figure out things you can't the the naked eye doesn't see. Yeah,
0: because then we're looking at the superficial skin damage in pressure ulceration, obviously biomechanically. As a result of excess shear strain and stress, but then we're looking at the deeper pressure ulcerations with having high pressures in combination with that shear stress. So should we, should we be looking at them as two different entities, superficial pressure ulceration and deep?
1: Uh, I'm, 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 I think that there are many different bees playing a role there. Uh, the other thing is but which which part of what we call pressure ulcers are actually trauma, traumatic lesions from moving your patient a bit rough into the bed. Uh, uh, so that could be one. There could be underlying metabolic diseases which we have not recognized. Um, so the obvious ones are are simple to notice. If I put you in a bed and I glue you to it and it don't make you move, you will develop problems. That's the easy one. But the hard one is to figure out what else is happening there and what's the impact thereof. And, and, and one, one example is, is reperfusion injury, which was a few years, we said, well, that's the holy grail, one of the very important things we see happening in wounds. And later on, it, now it's, it's succeeding again. And we say, well, it, perhaps it plays a role, but it's not that important. And I think these things will change over time. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, certainly, I mean, in limb ischemia, certainly that's the reperfusion injury after a prolonged period of compression, et cetera, is a big factor in localized tissue damage. So yeah, these are all really important things. One last topic just to discuss would be just SEM uh, detection. So just the sub moisture detection. How accurate do we think that is in terms of being an early detector? And how much do we think that's going to influence, um, obviously, investigations, clinical practice moving forward?
7: Well, as somebody who's um, conducted um, research, again, efficacy research, lab research um, on this technology, I can tell you that it's a breakthrough, even conceptually, in um, now equipping um, nursing staff with um, a technology, a handheld technology, that allows them to use modern sensory computerized uh, means um, in addition to uh, the traditional visual assessment. So not, not just using their five senses and, the, and their bare eyes to assess what's, um, what's the status of the skin is, which is essentially a post-mortem thing because once you see something on the skin, then there's damage there, it's already happened. So um, to look at um, the process, um, in, in, which is the essence of early detection, um, at the stage where it's not yet a clinically uh, meaningful or a clinically irreversible um, tissue damage problem, um, that by itself is um, is a huge. Um, progress and then obviously there every medical device has an accuracy and you can discuss uh, whether this is the ultimate accuracy or where the uh, where you need to improve the accuracy and and there will be other technologies in the future i assume that will use other um, physical or physiological uh, markers um, that indicate tissue status but i think that this is not this is not the point for now. The point for now is that we need more technology in the field. We need um, to augment and to empower nurses with um, in this particular field of wound care with technology as um, as healthcare professionals in any other field of medicine um, are um, are assisted by technology. If you take you know, the ECG and the blood pressure monitor and the uh, and the ultrasound Doppler um, technologies from cardiologists, they would all go home and say, you know, we can't work anymore because we don't know what to do. So why are nurses expected to uh, work without technological means? And and I think that the, this is this is an innovative technology in that aspect. And it's a pioneering concept. And, and that's the important part of it.